Well, good morning once again, and uh, let me just say, I know there's some overlap, but let me say uh, to this body this morning that I'm thrilled to be here. I love this place. I love this church, and thankful for the uh, small and occasional part I've been, I've been able to be part of the ministry here. And Bart mentioned that uh, we uh, rather spontaneously began to plan a uh, trip in 2025. I'd love to do that. Uh, when he asked if he, if I, I'd do that, I just the, the one caveat is I'm 77 for heaven's sake. So who knows what's going to matter? In fact, I, I took the liberty to sit in the back during the because. You know, when you're 77, for what you know, there comes a time in your life where one of the most precious physical delights still remaining to you is when the song leader says you may be seated. You know what I'm saying? So, so uh, I needed a little. But at any rate, uh, and and let me say on behalf of Shepherd Seminary, Cary, North Carolina, that we are delighted, humbled, and uh, and uh, just absolutely. Uh, uh, just delighted with the prospect of partnering with this marvelous local church and, uh, and offering seminary classes, fully for, uh, legitimate, robust seminary classes here in the church. And uh, I'll not tell you anything more about it. We're going to have a luncheon right after this, and uh, uh, you're certainly welcome to come if you're, if you're interested, or for that matter, if you know somebody who might be interested in formal degree-seeking uh, training, uh, but if you're interested just at the audit level, we'd love to have you. Well, the time we've had uh, together, I've, I, I, I said we we're going to focus on the, uh, on the, uh, hold on here, on the family life of Jesus. And, and uh, uh, this, this first hour this morning, we talked about what I like to think of as Jesus and his village. You know, we made the point that uh, Jesus lived his entire life out in Nazareth up until the time as an infant, maybe two or three months old. He was uh, taken by his parents from Bethlehem back up to Nazareth, and they settled in there. And uh, uh, from that time until Jesus went to be baptized by Jesus, at the, uh, by John the Baptist at the age of 30, uh, Jesus lived his life out in Nazareth. And and I think Luke's story, and, 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 and those years are, are called the silent years sometimes because the Bible does not have a, much detail, much, much story at all about those 30 years. And, and the stress in the first hour was simply that we have this marvelous narrative in Luke chapter 4, uh, which I think Luke, uh, there's so much that Luke is introducing us to about the ministry and the person of Jesus in that marvelous narrative in Luke 4. But, uh, and I, we only told the first part of it, by the way. You remember that what happens is that after the people were so amazed that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, then he uh, reminded them that God loves the Gentiles as well as Jews, and they were so angry they tried to throw him off of a cliff. But uh, that's for another time to talk about that. But, but to come back to it, that passage, that, that narrative, seems to me to demonstrate beyond peradventure that Jesus lived a stunningly normal life. Not stunningly in the sense of, his, of, his, of his, uh, the people who lived there in the village. That's what they expected. But I think uh, our minds rather slip into the idea that perhaps he was some sort of a superboy. or something. No, he lived a life so stunningly ordinary, normal, that when those who knew him in every season and vicissitude of life heard him claim to be the Messiah... They were absolutely amazed and dumbstruck. And it, it, it remained that because Jesus is going to minister for 18 months. And Matthew 13 is the record of his coming back to Nazareth after Luke 4 has him at the beginning of the 18-month Galilee ministry coming to Nazareth. Matthew 13 has him explicitly very, very close to the end of that Galilee of those 18 months, returns to Nazareth, and you have exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, they're so... Well, Remember, he doesn't do many miracles because of their unbelief, but he does some miracles, and the response is, what's going on here? This is Joseph's son. We, we know his brothers. We have his sisters. So Jesus lived a, 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 a life, and, and I'm going to emphasize as well that he, he lived a life which includes all of the seasons and crises and decisions and so on of life that are absolutely intrinsic to life. Folks, this is so important. He lived your life before you. And he did that so he can be touched with the feeling of your trials and difficulties. That's absolutely explicit 
in the statement of Hebrews 4, but it's also so carefully demonstrated in the narrative of the Gospels. Now, during those 30 years, there, was, there is one incident, Luke chapter 2, and that's where I'm going to take you, where, Jesus, uh, where we see Jesus. Uh, uh, you know what? We have an incident from those years, and it's in Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, and it's very familiar. I want to take you there. But uh, Luke 2, I'm going to scroll down here. Forgive me for doing this. Uh, and it begins actually in verse 41. You have, you have Luke's telling of the nativity narrative. And, uh, and, and in verse 39, I just mentioned it, it says that when they had performed all things, now this is, all right, so the idea, I said this this morning, but just I don't like to just jump into a passage and not make any sense of it. What it's talking about here is that uh, after Jesus was born, Mary, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, uh, that is sometime after the 40 days, they, had to, they were staying in Bethlehem. They had to go up to uh, where Jesus was born, of course, and now they have to go up and attend to Jerusalem, five miles to the north of the temple, and go through the rites of purification that a woman goes through after a child birth. And while they're there, they encounter Anna, and they encounter Simeon, and so on. Those remarkable stories. But then it says, when they performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, that's the Mosaic law that they, they attend to those, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. The grace of God was upon him. And I said in the first hour that Luke uh, knew that only because he had undoubtedly interviewed Mary. She was the one who could give that testimony. But now Luke tells us this one story. And it's the story of Jesus at the age of 12 going up to Passover. Now let me take you to the... Uh, to the notes, and uh, uh, and by the way, <laughs> well, let me just scroll back here real quickly. I call this right here uh, the boyhood of Jesus. It would have been Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua the son of Joseph, and I'm trying to. He was the kid down the street, for heaven's sakes. I like to say pondering the life of young Jesus as reflected in in the scriptures, and to remind you that before there was a God man, there was a God boy. And uh, he lived his life out in his genuine human being. Well, uh, so that's kind of Jesus in the village. Now we talk about Jesus and his parents because there is a remarkable scene here. And I'm going to try and uh, dig into it. So let me just go, first of all, to the narrative on your sheet. Now we'll go back to the scriptures. This, I would argue, is the end of Jesus childhood, and, and it, it reflects a lesson that he learned in the temple of Jerusalem. All right, now, let me just say, I am convinced, and I like to say, I said the other day, I believe this with two or three fibers of my being, but I'll up that to 10 or 12 fibers of my being. I, I'm fairly well convinced that what's at stake here is that, all right, it says when he was, there it is, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old. Now, interestingly, there are only two specific chronological references or notations in Jesus' life. Luke 2, it says when he was 12 years old, he went to the temple. That's this incident. Luke 3, verse 21, says that when he was about to turn 30, he went to be baptized by John. So, why does Luke make much of the fact that he was 12 years of age? I believe it is because Jesus has been newly bar mitzvahed. Now, this is a prevailing uh, 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 persuasion among the commentators and so on. And let me take you back to the notes. I, I just think there is every reason to understand that, 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 and I think it plays rather dramatically into this incident. Now, let me explain. I think most of you are familiar with it. But uh, most cultures, ours accepted, uh, has, have some sort of formal rite of passage by which a young man, by which a boy becomes a young man, by which he uh, uh, transitions from the role of a child to the role of a man. And uh, the Jews have this. It's called bar mitzvah. The word means uh, son of the law. Aramaic for uh, son is bar. And let me say, I know that today, bar mitzvahs happen generally at the age of 13. But that's a modern contrivance. And there is every indication, I think Paul refers to this, that 
it was in antiquity, it was up to the father to decide at what age the boy was ready for the responsibilities of adulthood. And I get that from Galatians 4, where Paul is talking about, about a bar mitzvah. He's talking, he calls it an adoption there, and I don't think it's an adoption like we know in our culture. I think what Paul's talking about is bar mitzvah. But he says, remember, remember this phrase from Galatians, at the time appointed of the father, the boy becomes a man. So it was up to the father. Now, uh, obviously, it would be after puberty, and, and, and it would be, uh, I think it's fair to say, no younger than the age of 12. Certainly, Jesus, young boy Jesus, living out a very normal life, as we, 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 we stressed this morning, but by the same token, he would have reflected a maturity and a, a, a selflessness and so on that certainly he was ready to be bar mitzvah. So does that make sense to you? I think what's at stake here is that Jesus had been newly bar mitzvah. Now, this is how that plays into the story. As long as a boy was a boy, before his bar mitzvah, he, he certainly he was busy about chores at the house and he might have helped out in the, whatever his father's business was, but he was basically a boy. For many years, he went to, he went to uh, synagogue school. We talked about this this morning. Once he had learned to read at the feet, at the, on the lap of his mother. By the way, this is referred to by Paul and Timothy when he says to Timothy, remember Timothy had a Jewish mother, and he says to Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. Remember that passage? What's curious about that in, in Timothy is that, in 1 Timothy, is that the word Scriptures there is not graphe. It's not the normal word. It's grammata. It means ABCs. And I think what he is saying is that Timothy, from a child, uh, you know, your, your, your mother and your grandmother sat you on the knee and wasn't C. Dick Run, it was Moses and Elijah, but nonetheless, he was learning from the scriptures uh, to, to read. And so, so the point is, after he had learned to read, then he was day by day trundled off to synagogue school where he was, it was entirely a catechism. He was taught what Moses, to understand Moses. Now, uh, that went on basically until he was bar mitzvahed. Once he was bar mitzvahed, he got busy about the business of adult life. And what that would mean, and I think that's explicitly what's going on, I, explicitly, I think it's implicit in the record here, what that would mean is that, that a young man, after he had bar been bar mitzvahed, would begin to apprentice for the trade of his father. Now, in that culture, you didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what you were going to be when you grew up. You were going to be what your father is. And especially, I said earlier that I, Jesus is identified, and Joseph, his adoptive father, is identified in the scriptures as a carpenter. And I know that that's kind of a fun to think about. You have a lot of illustrations, and Joseph supposedly had a shop where he made yokes for oxen and so on. I don't think so. The fact is that the word carpenter there, tectone in the Greek, tectone means builder and you build what you, with what you have, and you build with stone. And so I think he was probably a stonemason, but however you like that, once Jesus, once a young man was bar mitzvahed, then he, I, I said earlier that probably the reason, very possibly, very possibly, the reason uh, Joseph's family had relocated to Nazareth because it was a very Jewish village, but it was very proximate, less than an hour's walk, from a very, very busy city that was being built, first of all by Herod the Great, and then by his son Herod Antipas. So there was always ready work for a stonemason. So the rhythm of Joseph's life would have been to be up early before the sun, pack a lunch, gather with his work gang, make his way up to Sepphoris, and as the sun is coming up, go to one of the foremen. Perhaps he's working on a job that takes many Every You get paid day by day. At the end of the day, you get paid. It's day work. But you go back, you find a supervisor, and, and you, you go to work. And my point is that what's going to happen now, and we'll come to it in just a minute, is that that's going to be the rhythm of Jesus' life. And he's going to apprentice to his father. By the way, it's, it, there are a couple of indications that, that Jesus was a very physically strong, virile man. And uh, in the first place, the fact that he could survive a 40-day fast not many of us could survive that. And secondly, 
the, the, the reality that he could survive the sort of psychological, physical pressure which is reflected in the garden when he sweats great drops of blood. Many people would, would not survive that. And I think, I think it's interesting that for at least 18 years he had, he had worked as a stonemason, hauling those big stones and, and, and swinging that nine pound. And, and so, so the point, but the point is that that's the transition of his life. And I think that's what's at stake here. And I think that's why Jude, uh, uh, Luke says uh, when he was 12. So I talk a little bit about that. And uh, I have the note here, so I'm going to stop and talk about it here on the, on the, if you have those notes in front of you, you can see it. The note regarding the concept of son in the culture of Judaism. Now this is a bit of an aside, but it relates. He is becoming a son of the law. It's interesting, and actually I was talking to a, a brother just a little while ago about the, the, some of the, the dynamics of this, but in, 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 the, in the Hebrew culture, the word, the, the Hebrew word is bain, the Aramaic word is bar, but the word, and the Greek word, by the way, is weos, but, but that's Greek, but as it's part of these stories, it's part of a very Jewish culture. In a Jewish culture, a, a, a boy was not formally, M-A-L, a son until his bar mitzvah. And probably the most central dynamic of the bar mitzvah, the reason he was now called a son of the law, was after his bar mitzvah, he was to step into the role of an adult and he was to be regarded as the equal of his father. Now that idea that the boy, once he is bar mitzvah, becomes a son, which means he's equal to his father, I think very possibly that is what's behind the unmistakable reality that in the scriptures, son of means one with, means equal to. And that's why Jesus 81 times refers to himself as the son of man. Now he's getting that out of Daniel chapter 7, but the point in Daniel 7, and Daniel 7, of course, is when you have those four beasts and then the Ancient of Days takes his throne and one like unto a son of man. And so the emphasis is his humanity, but when he talks about himself as the son of man, he is fully man. On the other hand, he is the son of God. And, 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 and I know that is, is hard on some, and they say, well, wait a minute, a son of, in our, in our world, a son of means a first-generation male offspring, means your father called you into existence. So Jesus, this is the whole Arian argument, by the way, the whole argument of the Arius and, 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 and the heretics and so on of the fourth century that is almost immediately, explicitly, deliberately replicated in, in, in all those heresies today which deny Jesus' deity. Uh, their big argument is, well, the Bible says he's the son of God. Son of means called into existence. No, it doesn't. It means equal to. And uh, you have that Judas is called. We, we sang about it, didn't we? The son of perdition. Now, that has nothing to do with Judas's parents. He's bound for perdition. Uh, in Matthew 23, you have that fascinating passage where Jesus is uh, getting after the Pharisees and the, his enemies in that day, those who were going about to kill him. And, uh, and he says this. Uh, he says, uh, and, and, and well, probably pointing down to, the, to, the, to the, the Kidron Valley where you have so many of these monuments, and he says, he says to, the, to the Jewish leaders of his day, you build tombs to the prophets, and you insist that if you had been alive, you would not have ki killed the prophets like your forebears. One of the very embarrassing things about the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew narrative, is that in many cases, the prophets who were sent by God were slain by the ones to whom they were sent. And so Jesus is saying, you build tombs to the prophets as if to say, oh, if we'd have been back there, we'd have honored them. So you, 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 you honor the tombs and so on. But then he says this, in point of fact, you go about to kill me, and in so doing, you prove that you are indeed the sons of your fathers. Now, lineage is not at stake there. Do you see the point? You're one with all through. And sometimes in the most spontaneous way, that, remember that gourd that comes up in Jonah, the last chapter, and it's only there for a night, and Jonah is upset because he doesn't get the shade and so on. And, uh, and God says, you had, you had pity on the gourd, and this is what it says in the English, which only lasted a night. You know what it says in the Hebrew? Which is the son of a night. You, you get it? When, when, when David is confronted by Nathan about, 
Well, he tells him the story about the, the imaginary story about the man who stole his neighbor's one ewe lamb. Remember that story? And, uh, and, and David, he's been harboring this sin, and sin makes you stupid. And, 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 and so David reacts very, very wrongly, but he says, uh, he says, you get that man in here, he shall surely die. That's the English. Guess what it says in the Greek? Uh, the Hebrew, the Hebrew. What it says is, he is the son of death. He's just about, I, does that make sense to you? And so again and again, you get this idea. And I think it's born out of the fact that in that culture, once a boy becomes a bar mitzvah son, then he is to be treated as an equal to his father. And that word, I know there are a lot of ways in which the bar mitzvah concept is, is reflected in, 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 the, in the literature, in the culture. But uh, so to go way back to it, the point is that in the narrative is that now Jesus, I think, has been bar mitzvahed. And, and very, very important here, I have here one very important privilege which befell young Jesus at this time. And this would be the first time in his life. Now let's, let's just rehearse what's at stake at the Passover. The Passover, it's one of the three pilgrimage feasts. That is one of the three feasts, uh, Passover in the spring and, and Pentecost in the summer and tabernacles in the fall where uh, Jewish men were responsible to, a, to, to appear at the central sanctuary, at the temple uh, in Jerusalem at this time. Now, the Passover is the one feast which demands a personal sacrifice. There's no sacrifice at Pentecost, no sacrifice. Oh, there's a big sacrifice at, at Tabernacles, but it's Yom Kippur. It's, it's, it's the Day of Atonement. But on Passover, every family has to offer a sacrifice. And by the way, that sacrifice has to be offered at the central altar, Shiloh and then Jerusalem. And by the way, it has to be eaten at the place where God had placed his name. So families would come, and they would gather, and the city of Jerusalem would swell to many, many times its normal size, as millions of people came in Jesus' day. And, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, uh, I say that, you'll have to decide, won't you? But uh, the, the rabbis declared that, they, that their decision was that when it says you have to eat it at the place where God placed his name, that what that meant is you had to eat the sacrifice, the lamb that you had offered, uh, within eyesight of the tabernacle or temple. And uh, that's curious because at both Shiloh and when we go to Jerusalem, we do this. We'll go to Shiloh. We'll stand there. You can stand right where Hannah stood and prayed and so on. But that place is very, very easily identified and marked. I mean, it's, it's really spectacular. But what's interesting about it is that the place where the tabernacle stood at Shiloh is surrounded almost every side by hills higher than itself. And I was there some years ago, and I, I, had, I knew I had learned from my study that they have hauled more shards, more pottery shards, more broken pottery out of Shiloh than almost all the other places in it. Everywhere they go, they find just buckets and buckets of pottery shards laying on the, on the surface of the earth. And uh, I was with a, a young lady who grew up there, and, and she said that uh, her name was Moriah. Mariah. And uh, she's still there. She's grown older and had kids. As Well, I've grown older. My kids were a different story. But I've had grandkids. But... But the point is that uh, she said that her father used to explore those hills. They grew up in a village called Eli, which is, which is, which is just above ancient Shiloh. But she said her, 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 her dad, as a, as a boy, loved to explore those hills. And he said the amazing thing was he would, all the hills around Shiloh, he would climb up those hills, and it was just pottery everywhere. As soon as you crest the hill, there was no pottery. And I think the reason for that is that, and this the same dynamic is true in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, where the offering would be made, is surrounded by hills higher than itself, to the south, the southern hill, to the west, the western hill, and then the Mount of Olives and so on. And, you know, the Bible says that Moses is explicit that when you eat the Passover meal, you have to go inside. Now, the Jewish people in antiquity never went anywhere, as a matter of fact, people in antiquity never went anywhere without a tent. And so probably what happened is that at Passover season, on all of those hillsides, Shiloh or Jerusalem, they were just packed 
with people who had come and, and pitched their tent there. And now they go down and they offer the sacrifice and they're given the appropriate meat. They bring it back up, they roast it, and they go inside. And by reason of the fact that it's a ceremonial meal, they, they take the meal and then they smash the pottery. And that's why the hillsides are just littered to this day with, with pottery shards. Now that has nothing, that's, that's just to tempt you to go to Israel, okay? But, but on the other hand, what is important to our narrative is this, that uh, the family would come and they would either bring a lamb, not usually, generally they would buy a lamb, and that was perfectly legitimate, but, uh, and the lamb had to be at least a year old, it had to have no blemishes and so on, they would inspect it carefully, and then you would take it to the priest at some point, at least uh, 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 four days before the Passover, not necessarily on the, the Passover was on the 14th of Nisan, so sometime before the 10th of Nisan, you would have it inspected, and then it was incumbent that you have that lamb with you. The Bible is explicit. You weren't put it out to pasture. You weren't even to keep it in a pen. You were more or less to treat that young lamb like a pet, and it was to be with you. And uh, in point of fact, I think the reason is because that the, the chaos of the Passover, the lambs are very skittish, and so you're going to... Uh, uh, that lamb is going to get used to you, to trust you. And now comes the day of, of a lamb offering, and it's, it's a hugely busy day, and you're going to have to stand in line for some time. Uh, in Jesus' day, actually, all right, if I get into this, I'm in deep trouble, but actually, can you picture Herod's temple? Anybody? It's this huge 36-acre temple mount, but in the outside is the court of the Gentiles. You pass through that, you go to the court of women, and then beyond that is the court of Israel, and that's where the actual temple and altar are. And so that's where the lamb's blood has to be dashed against that altar. But there were so many hundreds of thousands of lambs to be slain that the priests had come up with a bit of a, I like to say, Henry Ford, eat your heart out assembly line, because what they would do is they would start in the court of Israel, and they'd make long, and they proclaimed, because the sacrifices were to be made in the court of Israel, which is very small, but it's the tabernacle. But they had proclaimed that on that one day of the year, the court of the Gentiles, that's about 36 acres, would be as the court of Israel. And so they would make these long lines of priests, and you would just stand at the end of one of those, you would wait, and, and you got your lamb, and you stand there, and you wait for your turn, and, and we're told that they, they could, it was, it was, they had a, a little tripod, and they would slay the lamb. They would hoist it up by the back legs. They would drain the blood. Some of that blood would be placed in a censer, and then they would hand over hand that, that little pot all the way back into the court of the Israel, and it would be dashed against the altar. And then they would take it over again, their hand over handing, just whoop, 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 and, and, and it would be taken to the laver, the, the, where everything had to be cleansed. And then it would be handed to the priest, and once again it would go out. Does that make sense to you? And so it was all, and, and, and we're told that under a minute uh, they, could, they could slay the lamb, uh, drain its blood, flay it, butcher it. And of course, these are the priests, the sons of Aaron. On the other hand, the Levites, remember the huge tribe of Levi were all workers in the temple, but only the sons of Aaron could actually be the priests. But the Levites were scurrying about, scooping up everything that could be burned or buried. And that was very quickly carted off to the Jeshimon, the wilderness down there by the Dead Sea, and it was burned or buried, and then it was a huge system. You've got to understand, you know, when you think of the, of the temple, you think of a, of, a, of a cathedral. Folks, it was a slaughterhouse. Tens of thousands of animals slain there every, you know, all the time, especially on Passover. And it had been built with this huge system of, of waterworks. And there was a, 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 an aqueduct system that came from Bethlehem five miles away and pumped hundreds of gallons into the Temple Mount. And underneath the Temple Mount were all these cisterns and aqueducts and so on. And you had this donkey train, I like to say, where constantly you've got donkeys going down there and you've thrown bunch of uh, goat bags. You, you, uh, the water bags were goat skins. You kill the goat and strip the skin and tie off the legs uh, and so on. 
and you got, I don't know, eight or ten of those on the donkey. You're taking them down there underneath the Temple Mount. You're filling them full of water. You're bringing them back up. You're filling the cisterns and the Levites. Remember the Gibeonites who came over? And, and you remember the Gibeonites in the Old Testament? They were one of the cities that Joshua was going to destroy, but they came to their senses, and so they came over to the Israel side, and, and, and God said, I'll make them drawers of water and hewers of wood. That's a big job. Oh, that's a big job to keep the fire going, but then to keep, because everything had to be cleaned off. And by the way, by the way, you're going to read this next week. Think about this when you read it. Uh, all, there was a system of, like I say, viaducts and aqueducts, I don't know, but, but all of those as, as they were washing. So what could be buried or burned was carried off and buried and, or burned and away down by the Dead Sea. But then there was all of this. They had to constantly washing everything away and all of those, that water was drained into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is on the east of the Temple Mount, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And that Kidron Valley becomes a wadi. Now, when we're there, I'll be careful. We're driving down the Jordan Rift. I'll be careful to point out the, 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 the Kidron, uh, wadi Kidron. Because, think about this, all of that, that that animal filth and so on, is washed into the Kidron. The Kidron makes its way all the way down and dumps into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is ten times saltier than any water on earth. And the Dead Sea is, in fact, God's sewage treatment plant for the temple. I mean, it's a, it's a tight system. Does that make sense to you? Now, that's more than you need to know, but, but what I want you to see is that what would happen then is that year by year, because the Bible says that Jesus went, that Joseph took them up year by year, but year by year, what would happen is that the, uh, uh, the head of the home, the father, would take the lamb, and, uh, and, and the, the rule was, this is rabbinical, but it was in order to get all those lambs slain, that it had to be at least 10 and no more than 20 uh, uh, people feasting on each lamb, but however that worked out in this case, Joseph would bring the, the lamb and, and go in. And, and let me just say this. I've, I've, I've been here before, but, uh, you know, the, the Levitical system of animal sacrifice, which we find so foreign and in many cases off-putting, but it, it was designed to assault your physical senses. I mean, it was, it was carefully designed by God to bring you powerfully, palpably, in face to face with some important truths, and think about this: this Passover lamb. You, this, 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 you're you're going to bring this lamb, and like I say, he had to have been with you for four days, at least four days. So he's gotten to know you. He kind of trusts you, and now what's going to happen is you're going to set him down when your turn comes in front of that priest. And the Bible says, now this is I think applies. It's, it's specific of the sin offering, but it says that you lay your hands on the offering. But the Hebrew doesn't say just, it's, it's not, it's this. You, you put your weight, you rest. So this is your, your position when the priest slices that throat. So again, I like to say every physical sense, you're going to hear the death rattle, you're going to watch as the eyes roll back, you're going to see as the blood is, is, is evacuated. Uh, in a few minutes, you're going to go and taste of it. But when that lamb collapses, you collapse. You're going to have to get up and dust yourself off. Why does God ask you to do that? Why does he demand it of you? I think it's because God has two marvelous grand truths he wants to teach you, and it all comes together when you offer that sin offering. And the first truth is that there is a God in heaven who will not, cannot tolerate sin. God didn't have to deliberate what the wages of sin are going to be. The wages of sin must be death. That's the first truth. But the second truth is that that same God is so gracious that he will provide an innocent victim of his choosing, and that victim can die the death you deserve to die, but on one condition. You put all your weight on him. you got to entirely depend upon that, that offering. So now, with all that in mind, here's my point. Jesus, year after year, I picture him, and maybe this is a little over, but Maybe he, with his young half-siblings, and with Mary and Joseph, they've come to Passover. So now comes the day for the Passover lamb to be slain, and uh, they make their way toward the temple. But they can only go so far. And let's say they can go as far as the court of the women, because she is a Jewess. They are a Jewish family. But however you like that, what happens is that 
Jesus drops the hand of his father Joseph and takes the arm, perhaps, of his mother Mary, and Joseph goes alone into the temple for the Passover, for the slaying of the Passover. This is the first year where, and I think it's significant, this is the first year where Jesus, if you don't mind, drops the arm of his mother and takes his father by the hand. And together, they make their way in. And, and by the way, Jesus would have been singing as every young boy when he first entered those sacred precincts. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And for the first time, Jesus witnesses the sacrifice of that Passover lamb. Now, one of the, we've talked much about the, uh, the real humanity of Jesus, and one dynamic in that regard is this, that, that uh, uh, I, this is, I, I think, this is a kind of a subject unto itself, but I think Jesus had to discover who he was. That's, that's intrinsic to humanity. I think he would have, he would have realized it very early on, Number one, his mother certainly would have put, her, put him on her knee and told him the remarkable stories of his nativity and the wise men and the whole, all those marvelous stories. Number two, Jesus loved the scriptures. We know that. And as a lad, he would have discovered himself in those scriptures. But my, and, and some people will connect that to this. I don't think so. I think much earlier. But my point is that Jesus knew from the scriptures who he was. He, he knew uh, the Spirit of God had... had uh, I think, taught him through the scriptures. He certainly knew his destiny. And yet, for the first time, to witness the sacrifice of the, of the animal. I think it was perhaps powerful. But let me go a little further. Uh, matter of fact, let me back, go back to Luke 2. And, uh, uh, well, you know the story. Uh, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem. When they had finished the days, they returned the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. Now, uh, and, and that word boy there just means young. That's all it means. It's often used of bar mitzvah boys, but, but uh, so it, it doesn't contradict what I just said. It just means uh, the young man Jesus lingered behind. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposed him to have been in the company. All right, real quickly. Now i got to hurry. Number one, uh, there's not, it sounds like they were really careless parents. That's not the point at all. Let's think about it. Number one, you would never, they lived in, in, uh, in uh, Nazareth, and you would never make that trip from Galilee to Jerusalem by yourself. It will always be in a company. It was dangerous. There were a couple of routes. Whichever route you took, it was dangerous. You always traveled with a large group. And, uh, and, and so that's the thought. That Secondly, remember this. They did this every year, and it was always exactly the same cycle. Eight days, and then we go home. Number three, Jesus was the most responsible kid who ever lived, for heaven's sake. She never had to worry about it. Jesus. He was supposed to be somewhere. From the time he was just a little guy, he, he was always there. But number four, now he's a man. Certainly we can trust him. And so both Mary and Joseph, and, and many times in the, in the company, in that in that band, if you don't mind, of Passover pilgrims making their way along the route. The men would be on the exterior, you know, kind of guarding, watching, and the women and the children would be in the middle. So Mary thought he was with Joseph. Joseph thought he was with Mary. It's perfectly reasonable. But at the end of the day, you gather as a nuclear family. And so it says, uh, when they didn't find him, they went a day's journey and they sought him. So again, they're going to settle down. They're going around. Anybody seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where have seen Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? And when they can't find him, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, again, this would be a bit of an alarm, you know. I mean, number one, honest to goodness, just get in the moment. You're Mary and Joseph, and this is the most dependable kid. What in the world is going on here? You're undoubtedly thinking maybe he hurt himself. Maybe he's in some trouble or something. Uh, why would he not be here? We've lost the Messiah. This is good reason to be concerned. But... Uh, so they come back, and it says, when they did not find, they returned to Jerusalem, and after three days. Now, it means literally on the third day. And you've got to understand, uh, <laughs> when, when you leave Jerusalem to go up to Nazareth, undoubtedly they were taking the rift route, that means you would make your way all the way down to Jericho. Jericho is, is 1,300 feet below sea level. Well, it's 900 feet, but the, where you cross the, 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 the Jordan rivers uh, is 1,300 feet below uh, Jerusalem is on the east side of, on the west side of the, 
Mount of Olives, which is 2,700 feet above sea level. So you got a 4,000-foot elevation of about 15 miles. Jesus said one time in a story, there was a man who went down from Jerusalem. You flat go down when you leave Jerusalem and go to Jericho. And the travel from Jerusalem to Jericho is one day. It's about 15 miles. It's an easy day because you're going downhill. The travel from Jericho to Jerusalem is easily a two-day. That's why there's an inn halfway along the way. That's in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. So the point is that they made their way down. Very likely, they're in the region of Jericho. They stopped. They can't find. Now they got to haul way back up there. That's, so it probably takes them the better part of two days, even hurrying. And so it's probably on the third day that they get up and they go to friends and neighbors and so on. Uh, not neighbors, but you know, people they know there in the city and, and, and they can't find him anywhere. And so finally they go to the temple and they find him sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. I love that scene. I've talked about it before. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. But here's the nub of the, the, the story that I want to get to. Uh, it says in verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And what were they amazed? That he wasn't hurt that he wasn't, you know, laying in a, in, in a bed somewhere. Uh, they, they were, he was just standing there teaching. They couldn't believe it. And, 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 and his mother said to him, now we're going to talk about it this evening, but I just, I, you know what, frankly, we know that there is a, a the Catholic Church has, has done, has, has, has built doctrines around Mary, which are totally wrong and so off-putting. And I think it leaves us with sort of a skittishness about Mary. Get to know this woman. This is a remarkable woman. And, and I think that uh, it, this scene right here, where here you have Jesus, and, and I'm going to fill some things in here, but this, what is explicit in the text is this, that Jesus is teaching, not teaching, he's interacting. Listen, listen, time out real quickly. What did you have to be? There was nobody in that culture more respected than a rabbi. What did you have to have? What did you have to do? What did you have to have to be a rabbi? You had to have disciples. That, that was entirely, if you had disciples, you were people who were willing to pay money and travel with you and work by day and, 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 and provide for you, then you were a rabbi. Well, those rabbis were generally itinerant because they would go where the work was so that their disciples could work. But at, at seasons like this, they would come and bring their, their, their disciples and they would afford, there was rather a formal posture where the, the, the rabbi would stand somewhere, usually on a hillside, but in this case, probably in the temple, maybe on one of the porches and his, his disciples would literally sit down at his feet and then that was kind of the signal that the rabbi is going to teach. And so you have almost a formal classroom uh, dynamic going on. And, uh, and by the way, because that was generally done on the hillside, the, the, the colloquial term for that, and most people left home and kith and kin, home and business and so on, and they would travel with the rabbi for, ex for just several months. And I I'm going to take a few months. I'm just going to study under the rabbi. And again, these were all living in clans, so there were extended families, and it was perfectly feasible for a man to absent himself for a time. But the point is that because that was generally done on a hillside, uh, the, 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 the term for that, colloquial, was if you're going to follow a rabbi, it is you're going to dust yourself in the powder of the rabbi's feet. And, uh, and, and, and so, but I'm saying that these rabbis would come, and many of them were well-known, had a lot of reputation. They would come, and they would kind of convene the school there, and it was perfectly legitimate for, for people just to join in, and that's what happens. Jesus is drawn to this as a boy, and, and he begins to interact, as it says, but now he is standing there, I think, in all nobility and innocence, uh, interacting, and his mother comes, and I picture her just coming up behind him and maybe laying his, her hands on his 12-year-old shoulders and whisper in his ear, and she says, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And, and Jesus turns to her and he says, why did you seek me? Now, his point is not, why did you come looking for me? But why would you look anywhere else? And he says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And it goes on to say, they did not understand the statement which he spoke, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Now, at this point, I want to fill something in. What's at stake here? And folks, I'm, I'm going to ask you, 
seize the high ground here and ask you to think, uh, to take Jesus' genuine humanity very seriously. And what that means is that Jesus had the capacity to learn. Of course he did. There are no options. It's my persuasion that what's going on here is, all right, I'm going to ask you a question. And I think I may be even asking in the notes, but I just, I'm, I'm, I'm taking you somewhere. If there were two-wheelers in, in Jesus' day, could Jesus ride a two-wheeler the first time he tried? No, right? That's a learned skill. You have to, you, you've all either been on a bike or behind a bike, you know, running along trying to... I, I picture Joseph, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, he's got it, he's got it. So, now, here's the, the question. If in that process Jesus fell and skinned his knee, would you punish him for it? Well, of course not. Because it is an honest part of learning to make mistakes. Are you with me? Can you handle this? Is it possible that young Jesus made an innocent, reasonable mistake. And I think his mistake was this. And again, there's no sin in this, there's no wickedness in this, there's no fallenness in this, but this is the stuff of learning. And I think his mistake was this. He knew that once he was bar mitzvahed, it was time to be about his father's business. But he's got two fathers. And I think Jesus very, and that's what he says. And it's interesting when he says, did you know not I might be about my father's business? Now, that's the, the new King James. You know, that's my favorite. You got your favorite. And it probably says, I must be at my father's house. Is that what you got? Something like that? That's what you got. Neither of those is in the Greek. What the Greek says specifically is, I must be about that which is my father's. But I think what Jesus has reference to is, it's time to apprentice for my father. And innocently, honestly, he deduced that it was time for him to be busy as Messiah. So he stayed behind. But the gentle, winsome rebuke of his mother brought him up short. And I think he probably did some heavy thinking right there. And then it goes on to say, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And I think at least part of, if not central to what that means is, he apprenticed to his father, Joseph. Now, does that make sense to you? I, I, I honestly think, and there is, please don't accuse me of discounting his deity or anything like that. Uh, I am simply, you've got to explain something. Some, for some reason, Jesus stayed behind, and it turned out to be not such a good idea. Isn't that in the text? And I think the best explanation is to understand that he was. Now, I think there are several applications to be made, and I'll do it, and we're done. Number one, folks, have you ever, I know you have, in your life had this or that sanctified, godly, longing, aspiration, desire, and, and you're praying and you're waiting, and, and it's perfectly noble and it just doesn't happen, and you wait on it and so on. Well, just know this, that Jesus understands that. At the age of 12, he is hungry to be about his heavenly father's business, but I think this episode teaches him that it's time to be about his earthly father's business, so he goes back, and those 18 years between 12 and 30, when he's busily, he's, he's apprenticing himself, and then he's, uh, as I say, I think uh, J Joseph quite clearly died, and at some point Jesus would have stepped into the leadership in the family, and he's caring for his brothers and so on. You know, in that regard, real quickly, it's interesting that everybody who studies the book of James acknowledges that there is the most unstudied but unmistakable correspondence or similarity between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. It has the same rhythm, the same focus on nature. There's so many stylistic elements of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest sermon we have of Jesus, that are reflected in the book of James. Well, James is Jesus' half-brother, and there must have been times. I told somebody before that it's interesting that, that his brothers don't believe on him a long time. Uh, I suppose Mary was probably a better mother than this, but might there have been times where she you know, took 
little James by the shoulders and said, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? You know what I'm saying? So he, he'd have been a hard act to follow, but I, but, but, but I picture James as, uh, Joseph, you don't mind, is, is gone, and so Jesus is responsible for the care, and, and there are times where in the middle of the day, he's got his boys there, his brothers there, I'm sorry, and he's, he's, he's working through the scriptures, and he's he giving through some lesson, and little James begins to squirm and says, come on, let's go play, and you know, you sit right there, I'm not done. Now James grows up, becomes converted, and don't you know, when he writes a book, it sounds a whole lot like his big brother Jesus, see the point? So, so my point is that that those years, those 18 years, Jesus is waiting. And he's still waiting when he hears that John the Baptist is baptizing. And, and he goes out of all innocence just to go and be baptized to, 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 to identify with John's message. And as he comes up out of the water, now the Spirit of God falls upon him. Now it's time to be about his heavenly Father's business. So Jesus understands what it is to wait on the Father. And I give you on the notes just three little uh, points of application, perhaps. I, I think uh, uh, this episode, and you know what? Let me just say this, and I'm going to fine tune. I'm going uh, to I'm going to focus on just some of the audience, young people, especially those who are perhaps at that point in life. It's a bit of a cusp. You're you know you're 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 moving from childhood to adulthood. You're thinking about where your life's going to go. Right here, this is your pattern. This is exactly what's going on in Jesus' life. And, 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 and first of all, he, was, he, he manifests this desire for the word of his father. He's attracted to this opportunity. He, he's, 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 he's certainly hungry for the work of his heavenly father. But you know what? He's entirely, we sang it. You know, we sang that song that, that celebrates the phrase, not your will but mine be done. Uh, not, what did I just say? If you put up with that, shame on you. Not my will but yours. I was listening if nobody else was. Uh, <laughs> He said, not my will. And folks, it's one thing for us to say that, and it's challenging to stand there and sing that and think, man, that's pretty. Think about the Son of God saying that, saying to his Father. And he was meant it. He was, that was in a garden, and he had three times begged the Father, please, but no, let not, uh, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus was hungry for the will of his Father. And you have it reflected not only in the garden, you have it right here with his, with, I, I think, this marvelous episode. Now, again, Jesus is going to return to Nazareth. He's going to apprentice. He's going to live out his life, bury his father, live all through the vicissitudes of life until the time comes when he hears that John the Baptist is, in fact, calling upon those who believe that the kingdom is at hand. And I think Jesus says to himself, I believe that. My goodness, I'm waiting for the Father's time. You know what else, too? Mary must have wondered. All through those years, you know, he's got this wonderful son and he cares for her and it's such a dear and sweet relationship and he's so important to the family. But she must be thinking, that, that curtain's got to go up sooner or later. I mean, he's come to be Messiah. And that happens when he goes to be baptized and the Spirit of God falls upon him and drives him into the wilderness. And we'll talk about some of those, the elements of that this evening. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your son. And uh, Father, thank you for this marvelous gospel record. Oh, these four gospels which fit together so perfectly and are, 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 are together, such a deliberate uh, record. They provide us a biography of the life of our Savior here on earth. We thank you for them. And, and uh, again, pray that they might be the more precious to us. Again, prosper this ministry here in in, in, uh, in Hutch, and we, we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.